Hey, it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and Apex Coach, providing you insights and tools to better understand and apply the Apex body of knowledge to everyday supply chains. In this interview, we spoke with Ted Stank, Faculty Director with the University of Tennessee Global Supply Chain Institute, to discuss Tennessee-Alabama football and supply chains in the era of COVID-19 and beyond. It all sounds pretty boring, so let's see if Ted can prove me wrong. Ted, thanks for speaking with us today. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me here. Let's talk about supply chain disruption and, and the current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, although it is a dramatic and sad event, you know, specifically for people who are suffering, but one thing it has done is raise the level of awareness of supply chains in, in the everyday discussions. Uh, for example, pre-pandemic, I, I would listen to the news and make a social comment when someone mentioned the term supply chain. Back then, I was maybe posting once every other week, but now... I can hear supply chain mentioned every day in the news, whether it's a company talking about strategy or government discussing uh, protective plans. So from your observations, what are some of the changes our supply chains will face as a result of this experience? Well, one of the themes I'm going to talk about, Chris, as we go through today's questions is that a lot of trends that are already there are going to be accelerated by what we're seeing um, with this crisis. And I think this is one of them is that companies have been recognizing increasingly that supply chain management is really their key to, to competitiveness. We, we can be geniuses in how we structure our financial markets. We can be geniuses in, in our marketing, et cetera. But if you include particularly product design, that end-to-end -end supply chain perspective uh, has been targeted as impacting 70% of the people who work for organizations and credited with 70% of the economic value add. And I think that's increasingly being realized. It's sad that it takes time, a crisis for organizations to realize how important we are to value creation, but there you have it. And, it, and it's not a surprise, I think. I'm former military. Not a surprise that Supply chain ideas and end-to-end -end integration were born in the military because I think they thrive. Those ideas thrive in crisis, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting. Over the you know, maybe the past ten years, I've seen executive level positions. I mean, I, I even see some organizations have chief supply chain officers, which really raises the level of supply chain in companies. You've seen that? Yeah, absolutely. And that is that actually is one, another one of those trends that's increasing. We're seeing far more Fortune five hundreds instituting that chief supply chain officer and making it a true integrated end-to-end. -end. So areas of the organization that would never have been under an integrative control position are now there like manufacturing and chief procurement officers, et cetera, are all in this end-to-end -end integrated organizational structure. When this pandemic started, you know, it was probably a month ago now, you saw a lot of consumers panicking, you know, through the, whether it was toilet paper or hand sanitizers, those supply chains were pretty much impacted. Do supply chains in general, in all industries face some type of disruption? What I've seen is, is one of two um, categories for companies. One is for essential products. There, this is this is a case study of the bullwhip effect in practice in a way that we'll probably not see in our lifetimes. Um, in some cases, companies are seeing 50, 60 percent demand increases for essential products, um, medical equipment, pharmaceuticals, um, foodstuffs, paper products, etc. And then in in the other category firms are seeing demand just drop off the cliff um, for non-essentials. And we've seen that happen in automotive, uh, furniture, 
industries such as that that just aren't critical right now as we face and confront this crisis. And so it's really challenging our entire supply chain planning process and execution. Companies that are seeing this huge spike in demand, I mean, face it, these tend to be for products that are generally considered, uh, you know, in an apex segmentation um, framework, kind of A products. They're ones that have pretty um, stable demand, high volume, quick turn products. And so we just kind of chug them through in high volume. And there's not a lot of excess capacity to devote to them when they spike 50% because we're not expecting 50% spikes in typical toilet paper products and things like that. So that's been a big challenge. Again, for the companies that don't have essential products or for companies that are selling essential products, but maybe not seeing demand for non-essentials, we're seeing a lot of um, reduction in SKUs so companies can focus their capacity on the ones that are moving. I mean, frankly, at this point, consumers don't care what kind of packaging are around hand sanitizer, for example. They just want the product. So we're seeing a lot of, a lot of reactions in that uh, respect. Yeah, you mentioned the term bullwhip. That that is a big Apex term, and I, I mentioned to you earlier in pre-call that uh, I teach the Apex classes, and I was teaching uh, to a company, you know, in your neck of the woods, uh, Chattanooga Bakery. They make the moon pie, mm-hmm. and uh, I was explaining bullwhip to them, and, and the person in the class kind of you could see the light bulb went off, and he said, you know, we had that, we had something like that happen to us, a pretty constant product, but. One one season, they had a, a significant spike, and it was during the eclipse. You remember sure. a few years ago, the eclipse came right across North America. Right, exactly. Yeah, and they they realized they were there. They saw maybe thirty forty percent uh, increase in demand, and it was because anybody that was having a, a a eclipse party was buying anything that had to do with solar, whether it was moon pies or sunshine drinks or whatever it was. That, right. was, that was an interesting story. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, typically the way companies plan um, for for providing product to the market of those kinds of products is, I mean, they either have a a plant dedicated to it or a couple of lines in a plant and they run them constantly because there's not much changeover, et cetera. So when they have to really flex um, to, to tremendous scale, uh, that's, that's a challenge if you don't have additional uh, capacity to run it. Sure. And that, that leads into my next topic. I, I read an interesting article recently on the, the shortage of toilet paper from a, a perspective, more of supply chain. So, so I, when I, as I read the article, in my opinion, they correctly summarized that there, there it was, wasn't really a hoarding issue as much as it was a supply chain issue. And specifically, you'd mentioned it, segmented, segmented supply chains. And there were two primary drivers. One was given the product is mature, you know, toilet paper has been around forever. It doesn't change much. And typically stable, the supply chains were designed to be lean efficient and difficult to change. That's typically what that means. Right. And number two, the overall, the aggregate demand for toilet paper remained the same, uh, relatively constant. It's just people were buying more at home at home, as opposed to the commercial side of using it in the offices. And that just uh, created uh, challenges be- you know, from an Apex angle, because we talk about Zara, for example, having two different supply chains, one for fast fashion type of you know, flexibility, short, smaller lots, and then others, another supply chain for khakis and, and kind of basic white shirts that are pretty predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from, from your perspective on this concept or, or shortages in general, um, anything there you can add? Yeah, you know, it, that, that is a really interesting um, 
scenario that we're seeing with uh, with the toilet paper and, and that whole com- conversation about whether it is hoarding. Clearly, early on, we did see some consumer hoarding, but, but you're right. There are two distinct supply chains. The institutional one that goes typically through large distributors um, that don't have the relationships, the channels, maybe even the, the equipment to service, um, say, a consumer channel. And, and that is exactly what we're seeing is that that, re- that institutional channel still has significant product because sales in that channel completely dropped off and yet we're struggling to, to provide the retail channel. I've also heard conversations from some of the manufacturers of these kind of CPG products that it was also a capacity issue at the retailers themselves, not having enough people and handling equipment, et cetera, to be able to get products off the manufacturer's trucks and into their DCs and then out to their stores. So, and it just stressed the supply chain all along the the channel. I think that as we talk about resilience moving forward, probably one of the areas we'll have to address is having that ability to adapt different segments. I mean, why can't a Cisco or some other kind of food supplier deliver truckloads of toilet paper to a Kroger's distribution center or a Publix. I'm not sure why, but we're struggling with it. Well, you mentioned a good word, supply chain resilience. is uh, That's a key apex term. And we also talk about adaptability, kind of two related terms. So Ted, m- much of what we've been discussing revolves around effective inventory planning and even demand forecasting, two two key apex terms. But I recall hearing an interview you did a while back on inventory planning at a football game. That discussion really resonated with me specifically as a as a fan of the apex body of knowledge. And, and I think you talked about things like postponement and anticipatory inventory. Could yeah. you mind taking a few minutes to uh, retell that story? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it is a really entertaining story. And I share it with a lot of the different classes that I that I teach from undergraduates all the way to executives. And I happen to be a huge proponent of the uh, of the notion of segmentation. You mentioned Zara earlier with their fast fashion and then their basics. Um, what why why try to use advanced analytics and advanced demand forecasting for things that aren't going to change? are relatively easy to make. We can move them out in volume. And if they don't sell today, they're still going to be in style tomorrow, so we'll sell them tomorrow. No big deal. And you know, so you mentioned khakis and basic white shirts. I use that example quite a bit in my my travels around. But then with fast fashion, it's really difficult to plan. We can't forecast it. There's lots of areas of customization. The uncertainty levels are just so high. And if we tried to activate our typical long lead time supply chains and be able to have months of of product in the pipeline to provide it, we we would fail because we just can't guess what's going to move and what's not going to move. And Zara really was an innovator in saying we're going to really shorten our our cycle time so that we can respond quickly, move what's out there when it's hot and then move on to the next thing. So I've been talking about this for a long time and it's something I have a lot of passion about. You're right, though, questionable about times like this, whether there's some real downsides to it. But anyway, back in 2009, I've been at University of Tennessee since 2003. Um, You might recall when University of Tennessee had a pretty good football program. That that seems like ancient history. We're coming back. But probably one of the last times until maybe this past season that we really had a team that I would say overachieved um, was 2009. A guy named Lane Kiffin was coaching Tennessee, which causes a lot of passionate reaction in Tennessee fans. But that year, that team didn't have a whole lot in the cupboard, and I think he did a great job coaching. 
And the team was very competitive. And in the third Saturday in October, it's a very traditional Saturday. It's because when um, University of Alabama and University of Tennessee play football. And Alabama in 09 was just coming back. Uh, Nick Saban had been their coach. I think it was his second year. And Alabama was undefeated. Tennessee had maybe just a bit better than a, than a 500 record. And I have a friend who's a professor at Alabama. And so my wife and I got tickets through him and we went down to visit them and we went to the Tennessee-Alabama game. The night before, we were in a local night spot in Tuscaloosa and there weren't many people in the bar. And I ended up talking to this guy next to me and asked him what he did. And he told me that he was a t-shirt vendor. I said, oh yeah, that's interesting. Tell me about that. And he goes, well, I go to um, some of the biggest sporting events in the SEC in football season and basketball season. I can look at the schedule and I can predict what are going to be the the big games pretty well. And I go there with t-shirts and I sell t-shirts to to the crowd. So, wow, that's really interesting. So tell me more about it. So he started telling me that there are really two kinds of products that he sells. Uh, The first one is University of Tennessee versus University of Alabama, October, I'm making this date up, I don't know the exact date, October 23rd, 2009. You can predict that in advance. He knows well in advance, it's at University of Alabama, so he knows what the stadium holds, it's probably going to be a sold out game, what percentage of the fans are going to be Alabama fans, what percentage are going to be Tennessee fans. Of those, he has historical data of how many people buy T-shirts. So he can pre-print a bunch of crimson and white ones that say Tennessee versus Alabama that date and a bunch of orange and white ones in appropriate volumes based on the crowd and where it is, et cetera. And they go around. That's going to be, generally speaking, that will be a late afternoon game on one of the networks. So people will be tailgating a lot. And he's got a crew of people that come in and go around the tailgates and sell those T-shirts at, say, 15 to $20 a piece. And then I said, well, you know, what's always interested in me was coming out of a big game and having a T-shirt vendor at the exit to the stadium immediately after the game selling a T-shirt that says University of Tennessee X and University of Alabama Y with the score on it immediately. And he said, yes, that's my other line of product. Obviously, you can't predict the score. There are an infinite number of scores. And if you tried to do that, you'd have a lot of wasted product and probably not enough of the right product. So he uses some form of postponement. Again, he knows the relative numbers of crimson colors versus orange colors. And so he can plan appropriately. And then he has very trusted employees, oftentimes family members, located in vans strategically situated near big exits to the stadium with printing presses inside, just being able to print the numbers. The rest of the stuff has been um, speculated because we know it's Tennessee versus Alabama and the date. And then they're just going to postpone the numbers. And he has himself and several other people in the stadium with cell phones calling them so that as we get close to the end of the game, they're saying, hey, start printing. And this is a real example. Start printing Alabama 9, Tennessee 7, and they start printing it. And what actually happened in the game was with about a minute left in the game, Alabama had the ball fumbled on Tennessee's 45-yard line. Tennessee got the ball and over the course of the next minute drove down to close to Alabama's goal line and was getting ready to kick the field goal that would put Tennessee up 10-7 and really or 10-9 and end the game and give Saban's team its first defeat. So, of course, he called his – People and told them to hold the presses. 
Alabama unfortunately blocked that kick and Tennessee lost. And then they started reprinting the nine to seven ones. And as very happy Alabama fans left the stadium, they could see Alabama nine, Tennessee seven t-shirts and be charged $40, but they were happy to buy them because Alabama remained undefeated. And it went on to be actually Saban's first championship at Alabama. Yeah, that's a great story. I, I think every, every Apex person should hear that. So it, it even impacts, you know, what you said right at the end, margins, right? So sure. they were able to sell the shirts at a higher price. Well, that, and that's it. That's the key, right? Is um, It's a trade-off of inventory versus operating costs. I'm sure he paid those folks in the van more. His operating expenses were higher. But the trade-off with A, not having all that bad inventory, and B, being able to charge the greater margins. As I said, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get this in front of every Apex person that I know. Yeah, but and that that's obviously a very compressed uh, supply chain there. But that that's a great example. Right. Especially right. You mentioned postponement and all those other things. So you know, so far we've we've talked Ted about mainly about exceptional events. You know, causing supply chain disruption. Where are the biggest disconnects you see today in traditional supply chains that that may cause everyday disruptions? You know, we continue to struggle with planning uh, as much as we. Um, we throw a lot of resources, a lot of talent at forecasting. It's still a major challenge. I think that that remains. A lot of times it's what we do to ourselves that we have data, but companies really struggle with data management and getting the right data to the right places so that we can use our advanced analytics to look at it. I think that kind of breakdowns in visibility, um, both internally and externally, from what I've seen, are one of the biggest challenges we have in standard day-to-day operations. I think uh, we continue to uh, to cycle in the way we deal with really key relationships. In good times, we tend to to try to, to, to pinch pennies on our negotiating relationships with our supply base. And then when times get tough and there's capacity shortages, uh, we go to those same suppliers and say, hey, can you help us? And they tend to help the companies that have worked with them collaboratively and not provide to those who need it. And one of the things I'm seeing in, in these war room calls with a lot of companies today, again, this is coming back to disruption, but one of the real benefits is when companies have great relationships with their both goods and service providers, because those companies will step up and, and really go the extra mile for the ones they have good relationships with. Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking, as you said that, we, we talk a little bit about relationships in our Apex classes, but, you know, maybe we could invest more time in that and less time on, you know, planning ABCs and everything else. But, you know, it's, it's important, but boy, we just haven't gotten the improvements in forecast accuracy that, that we would have hoped over the years. Yeah. So, so point of, well, you know, this point of sale, and I think what you're referring to as CPFR, they've been around for a while now. Yeah. And is, is visibility and sharing still a challenge? Still a challenge. It's still a challenge. I, I, I'm working. Uh, I'm working some major uh, research projects with a couple of our big partners now, and it's all. It's really addressing a lot of the things that we're talking about. How can they increase their um, their flexibility, their speed of response, um, both upstream with their vendors as well as in their manufacturing and distribution processes, and. You can look at a lot of things in the facility itself about, you know, speeding um, changeover times and uh, labor that has multi capabilities to move from one line to another, et cetera. And those are all important. But at the end of the day, what we see are the biggest bottlenecks are this lack of visibility and lack of being able to get the data to the right place at the right time. 
you know, I, I've been doing this 30 years and you're right. We've been talking about a lot of these collaborative planning um, techniques for a long time. I think the difference from when I first started to now is when I first started, we didn't have the tools to capture the data and get it to the right place. Today, we have those tools and A, either because we have broken processes or B, because increasingly today we find ourselves drowning in data and we can't find the right information in all that data. We're at the other end of that spectrum where we still can't get the right information because we just don't have the right processes or we don't know where to go to be able to pull that data out and turn it into good info. So as you said, you mentioned data versus information. I guess there's a big, a big discrepancy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's something that firms uh, still struggle with. And it, not coincidentally, one of the biggest growing uh, majors at University of Tennessee is business analytics and statistics. And again, you're down in the Atlanta area. Georgia Tech obviously is one of the pioneers in that area. But um, it's, a, it's one of the biggest growing majors. And the biggest growing minor for supply chain majors at Tennessee is business analytics and vice versa. Yeah, data. What was the one? Data scientist. That seems to be a new field of study as well. Right. And to be able to get a data scientist who has an understanding of supply chain concepts or a supply chain professional who has an understanding of data science is is magic that every recruiter is looking for. So along those lines, um, you know, I hear predictive analytics and things like artificial intelligence discussed all the time. Do you expect these will, will have an impact on supply chains, maybe in terms of demand forecasting or? I do. I really do. I think um, I think that we are in relatively early stages of what is going to be a revolution. And I think, again, this COVID-19 crisis is going to accelerate a lot of those trends. But I, I think that demand planning, risk plan, risk management and planning, manufacturing, scheduling, all those kinds of, of planning and resource allocation processes are going through a, a major revolution as we bring online more uh, more digital technologies, thinking technologies like AI, administrative processes like robotic process automation, RPA, things like that. You know, we've got some folks who are working on the ability to capture um, natural language to be able to use that almost real time to predict changes in demand because people increasingly are tweeting their thoughts or putting it on Facebook, et cetera. I just read about a kid, literally just before our call, Chris, I read about a kid who's a senior at Cornell who has put together an analytics tool that will scrape posts on Reddit in real time and be able to assess the success or failure as far as fans are concerned of NFL drafts of the NFL drafts that are going to go live tonight or tomorrow night. You know, usually you can tell because it's live and people will boo or cheer. So he came up with an analytical tool that's going to scrape real-time natural language data and convert that into a negative one-to-one scale of applause or booing so that in real time we'll be able to see how fans react to draft In your discussion, you mentioned a a term that got me thinking about another interview I did. You said asset management. I interviewed Ben Konsinski. I don't know if you know him. He's a professor at Emory more on the computer science side. I've heard the name, I believe. He mentioned that supply chain management was really about two things, asset management and moving inventory. So so he said one thing is keeping things still and then keeping things moving. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting perspective. I'll have to refresh myself on that one. Yeah, and I agree with him. We we call it movement and storage, but same thing. 
So I also, just to switch gears a little bit on you, I was part of an interview with, I think, your colleague, Alan Omling, uh, when, when he was with UPS and he was doing work for 3D printing. Do you have an opinion on 3D printing and how it might impact the supply chain? Yeah, I do. Um, we're actually seeing some of our partners use it increasingly. It started with prototyping and it really sped the ability to, to look at different prototypes for products in product development and design. But um, we're seeing it increasingly used now in service parts management. I think that's going to be an industry that gets literally revolutionized. If you've ever, if you've ever been on a flight, back when we used to fly on aircraft, if you've ever been at an airport like Knoxville, Tennessee, which is a, you know, kind of a very small spoke airport waiting on a flight to Atlanta, for example, on Delta, and you've been delayed for a couple of hours because a latch on the coffee maker in the galley broke and we can't take off because we don't have a latch and it has to be flown in from Atlanta. Think about if the operating center in Knoxville had a 3D printer that could make the latch for that coffee maker in, in 10 minutes and we'd be off and on our way. A lot of aircraft manufacturing firms are using it in non-critical structures because you can make structural elements that are super strong but also super light like um, the internal cockpit or the internal uh, cockpit structures and walls and things like that. I've actually seen it passed around a conference room and it looks like it would be really heavy and you pick it up very easily with one hand. So I think in, in those kinds of manufacturing environments, we're going to see a lot of application. I've heard of automotive companies that are actually using it for some engine componentry. And again, that has tremendous implications for downstream um, repair and replace. Uh, I think in some consumer settings, we're going to see it increasingly. Going back to that whole T-shirt thing, I've I've seen it in uh, some clothing stores with the ability to to make little consumer items with uh, with three D printers. So it's happening now in the COVID nineteen. Every day you read about these high school kids that have a three D printer and they're using them to make face guards for for healthcare work. I think it's going to turn a lot of what we know about inventory planning and targeting on its head. In certain instances, not everywhere. I think that's a great example, especially service parts management, because, you know, from a, again, from an Apex perspective, that's very difficult to plan and manage. You got to store it. You don't know if you're storing it for one day or 10 years, you know, so. Right. And and you have to store parts like an automotive for, a, you know, a 1952 Ford, um, you know, that maybe turns, as you said, once every 10 years, but you still have to keep that part. So if you could shed a lot of that long tail of our inventory segmentation and just make it on demand, how, how critical that would be. A good perspective so far. So as we kind of ramp down, you mentioned earlier a little bit of a supply chain risk. Are, are you doing any research or work in that space? Yeah, it's, I'm not, not per se, although we have folks on our faculty who are working uh, specifically in risk. One of the things that I've been working on over the last several years really is related to uh, global supply chain, supply chain location decisions. And clearly risk is a, is a really big part of that. We've created a framework that we call EPIC. And EPIC stands for economic characteristics. P stands for political characteristics. So the nature of a country's political structure. I is their physical infrastructure, ports, railways, highways, communications technology. And C is business competencies. What's the nature of support industries like 3PLs, um, managerial capabilities and talent, skilled labor, that kind of thing. And we've used it to assess 60, I think 64 companies or countries around the world uh, and given them index scores on each of these categories so that companies can 
pretty quickly if they're looking for opportunities for either vendors or manufacturing locations or distribution locations in a region, identify which countries in that region might be the ones to now start sharpening our pencils and look more closely at. So it's pretty closely related to to global risk. Is that something companies can volunteer to participate in or is it an initiative where they have to partner with you? The framework is available to the public. We're actually going to launch um, our newest version of it um, in a a couple of days. People can find it on our website at www.globalsupplychaininstitute.edu. And then there's a pull down menu of research and it's under white papers. And we're going to we're going to update that every year. So it's publicly available. We've got a number of companies that are using it with their global supply management teams to try to understand where they can start diversifying some of their supply bases. Okay. And as a, just an Apex question, is that how does that tie into SCORE? Yeah. You know, what we've tried to do, we, it doesn't link, this doesn't link directly into SCORE, but what we've tried to do is look at characteristics of Epic that impact um sourcing and the capabilities of vendors in a particular area. If a company wanted to set up its own manufacturing or joint venture manufacturing and distribution. So clearly it links to plan, source, make, deliver as, as the score model would, uh, w- would say. So Ted, appreciate your comments so far. Something I always like to conclude on is, is getting our guests' perspective on the future of careers in supply chain management. And you're probably in a good spot to offer any suggestions or guidance um, that you might have for for two two audiences, a student considering a degree in supply chain management or an experienced professional maybe considering a career change into supply chain management. Any perspective there? Absolutely. In fact, I just hosted a uh, an online Q&A with about 200 of our graduating seniors this morning. And of course, they're they're concerned with what the job market's going to look like rolling forward, given given this disruption. I happen to feel that we are in the era of supply chain management in in organizations. And you could say that, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s was an era of really recognizing the importance of understanding finance and, and, and how finance drives an organization's success. And the 80s and 90s were kind of a marketing era. I think that we are now in the era of supply chain and organizations recognizing how the key to competitiveness, the key to financial success lies in best class management of supply chains. And my feeling over 30 years, again, of being in this business is that companies right now cannot find enough talented supply chain professionals to meet their needs. And and that's increasingly true. Crazy statistic, large, complex state university like University of Tennessee, 30,000 students, the largest graduating major at the University of Tennessee undergrads is supply chain management majors. We graduate over 400 a year. Psychology, you would think, would be the largest. They're second at like 280 graduates a year. And and it's because of this revolution of companies recognizing the need to get supply chain talent into their pipelines. So I think that I think that this is going to continue for a long time. I think that really tragic events like what we're going through today only heightens that recognition by organizations that they need more talented supply chain professionals. So whether you're entry level or whether you're somebody that brings a work experience and a skill set into it, I think that um, that the opportunities are, are really bright. I mentioned earlier that combination of analytics and data science with supply chain. And I think that's a real area, particularly for somebody with some experience. 
Well, one thing's for sure from my experience and my networking, you know, being relatively close to the to the to your market is uh a supply chain management degree from University of Tennessee is pretty much a golden ticket. Thanks. I mean, one of the things we do is keep really close to folks like you and, and our industry partners to make sure that we're, we're, we're learning what they're doing and then teaching our students that too. So. And even on the, from a, the student perspective, I, I, I manage the Apex chapter in Atlanta, one of the biggest in the country. And I would say at least once a month, I'm getting a call from a, a professor from a new school, new university that wants to set up a, an Apex chapter for their students. So, and we're, we're right now about 30% of our members are, are students. Is that right? Yeah. That's good to hear. Good to hear. And another thing for students is Apex membership is free for students as long as you can validate that you're a, a full-time student. So that's good to know. And that's a great way for a student to launch their career is to be able to have that kind of professional network. How about experienced professionals, maybe people that have been out of school for a bit? You think it's wise for them to try to make that change in the supply chain management? I think so. You know, and I have direct experience with that. I have a son who is a computer and electrical engineer and worked in that field for a long time. Ended up going to work for a, uh, a, a medium-sized company in Nashville and is leading their supply chain analytics group, uh, really kind of standing up a lot of their analytics processes around planning and manufacturing, scheduling, et cetera. And eventually, once we get past what we're in right now, um, we'll stand up that group with, uh, you know, with more headcount support. So, uh, so that's a direct experience. Um, and I think that that applies for folks from a lot of different background areas in business that all contribute to supply chain. We've got accountants, finance people, marketing people, all of whom have an interesting perspective that relates to supply chain management. You spoke about Epic already. So are there, is there anything else that you're currently working on or anything maybe the audience could learn from? Yeah, we, um, we stood up a group last year called the Advanced Supply Chain Collaborative. It contains uh, right now um, 11 of our partner companies, and they're working with us really closely on five different research uh, initiatives that our faculty are, are working with their folks to, to really explore issues that, that impact all of us. And we're going to try to find some, some answers and understanding across these different areas. We're looking at things like um, using advanced digitalization for inventory targeting. I kind of mentioned that earlier. We're looking at how we can improve um, both information visibility as well as cycle times to enhance supply chain agility. We've got a couple of our management folks uh, looking at how we can transform our workforce into being more familiar and able to use digital tools as we go into this kind of brave new world of digitalization. Alan Amling, you mentioned Alan Amling. He's leading one um, looking at the, uh, the true ROI of blockchain. We hear so much about blockchain. Where is it applicable? Where is the, uh, the ROI? And then our last project this year is, uh, is really looking at that data strategies. How can we make sure data is available in the right place at the right time so that we can access it and turn it into usable information? Ted Stank, thank you again for investing time with me and sharing your perspective. How can people get in touch with you if they're interested? Pretty simple, Chris. My last name is Stank. There's not a lot of those folks out there. So um, my email address is tstank, T-S-T-A-N-K, at U-T-K dot E-D-U. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. This was fun. Thanks for listening. To learn more about these and many other supply chain topics, consider getting an APIC certification. There's a YouTube video where you can learn more about bootcamp-style workshops at Georgia Tech. Search on Apex Bootcamp Courses Informational Webinar. If you're in the North Georgia, North Alabama, Chattanooga area, check out the traditional class formats offered by the University of Tennessee Chattanooga 
Center for Professional Education Supply Chain Academy. To learn more about General Apex and supply chain happenings around the Southeast, check out apexatlanta.org. Optionally, the supply chain doctor and Apex coach can bring supply chain certification workshops to your company. Just send a note to chris at apexcoach.com. And remember, supply chain is boring.